Welcome to episode 23 of the Camerosity Podcast, the fastest growing open source film photography podcast in the world. I am your host, Mike Ekman, and for the first time ever on a Monday in Sydney, Australia, Mr. Theo Panagopoulos. How is this upcoming work week looking, Theo? It's starting to look busier and busier by the minute, unfortunately. But I'm glad to be here and looking forward to meeting a few new people. From Gainesville, Florida, owner of Volta Coffee and the U.S. distributor for Cosmo Mono 100, Mr. Anthony Rue. How is business going down there? It's going great. Not exactly the distributor, but definitely a retailer. And we just got in 100 rolls. So if you're in Florida, you need black and white film, come talk to me. And finally, from Yellow Springs, Ohio, fresh from a really long nap. Mr. Paul Reibel, how are you feeling on this fine Sunday evening, Paul? Well, I'm I'm gonna if, you, if I snore, uh, I'm gonna go on mute most of the time, so you don't have to edit my snoring out. No, I'm gonna leave that part in. I might even make it louder. We're recording on a Sunday night because we just couldn't wait the full 14 days in between episodes. I wanted to say thank you again to Dan Tamarkin for coming on the show last week. The feedback we received from you all was great, and I know I certainly enjoyed it myself. Back again, we have Mark Faulkner. How are you doing, Mark? Doing well. It's a nice uh, Sunday evening. Excellent. Yeah, you guys not uh, on the show can't see Mark's background, but he's got a, a, a upgraded display cabinet with some green LEDs behind there. It's looking real nice. Having fun putting it all together. We also have back Nafis. Hey, Nafis. Hey, Mike. And everyone else. Nafis has joined us the last two episodes in a row, and we knew Dan was going to be on the show last week, so we really didn't have a lot of time, but um, I, I'd asked him to come back a third time to actually get a chance to talk about some of his work. Uh, Nafis had worked for the 20 by 24 gallery in New York. Yeah, 20 by 24 studio. Awesome. So we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit here, but we do have some people in the waiting room, so let's start letting them in. I see Dan Tree is back once again. Welcome back to the show, Dan. Hey, guys. Good. Mark was able to join us from the UK. Hello. Hello. Welcome. All right. So, Mark, uh, I see you are a first time caller, but you are definitely no stranger to the Camerosity podcast Facebook group. Uh, you've posted a lot of really cool things recently. I know you got the Airax Kiev upgraded camera. Maybe you could share some information about that later. But uh, do you want to introduce yourself for anybody who doesn't know you? Yeah, I'm uh, <clears throat> a lad in the northeast of England, uh, near Newcastle, for anybody who knows. Um, and I'm a Soviet collector, corrupted by Vlad. Yeah, Vlad tends to do that to people. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. He's an enabler. Yes. All right. James Allen. James, how you doing? Hi, how are you? You've been on the show once before. Uh, once you're back. Before. So, so it's good to see you here. You want to really quick introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm James Allen from the eastern panhandle, West Virginia. And uh, I collect cameras and uh, make my own prints. Excellent. Awesome. Howard Sandler, welcome back, Howard. Hi, nice to be back. Is that a uh, virtual background or do you just have a really nice kitchen? It's really my kitchen. It's I'm not there. It's a picture I took of my kitchen. But yeah, we just recently renovated. So awesome. we're, we're kind of house proud for a little while. I think you're going to have to have a sofa for dinner. Yes. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Richard Armstrong. Looks like uh, you're a first time caller. You want to introduce yourself? Um, I've been in once before, but I wasn't. Oh, you have? I, I okay. Had no audio. had no audio then on the um, Peter Kitchman show okay all right cool well yeah. welcome I'm, I'm down in new zealand so i've been a camera collector for the last 30 40 years oh wow so wow. Yeah, yeah quite a collection but um i'm just really interested in photography it was my first job working in a camera store way way back in the late 60s excellent so that's where i started from do you have a, a specific subset of of cameras or photography that you collect or you just kind of like everything i collect a bit of everything but i've got a, okay. a Big collection of Canon, um, Pentax, Voigtlander, and a smattering of 
many other stuff. Anthony has been eagerly wanting to have a Fotlander episode where we talk about the Vitessa. So do you have any of the uh, the plunger top Vitessas in your collection? Uh, the Tesla T. Yeah, I've got a couple of those. Yeah, they're fun cameras to shoot. The barn door yeah. ones are my favorite. They had the non the non barn door ones have an interchangeable mount, but I think it's cooler seeing that lens kind of pop pop in and out. Yeah, yeah, I've got um, two or three of those. I've got one of these recently. Is that the Zoomar lens? Zoomar? It's, yeah, the three fifty. Oh, oh okay. wow, wow! So I was quite pleased to get that. Is that a deco mount? Yes, it is. Yeah, that's that's a genuine Voigtlander article. So, is the uh, the minimum focus distance on that what like like a hundred yards or something like that? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Anthony, I you can't have one say of those, I've don't you? Ever used it? Ninety feet. Ninety feet. Yeah, I think I think Anthony has one like that too. And he was he he saw uh, so I think it said like twenty five. He goes the minimum focus on this thing is twenty five. Or maybe it's 20, whatever. He goes 25 feet. And then he's like, no, wait a minute. That's meters. <laughs> 28 meters. Well, welcome, everybody. We have a nice selection of people. We got some first-time callers. We have some returning guests. Uh, I'm really super excited to have Nafis on the show. Let's just start right with, with, um, with some of the large format Polaroid. Uh, quick synopsis. The first time we talked to Nafis, uh, Theo, I think it was towards the end of, the, of one of the episodes, noticed a very large wooden camera behind him. And we asked what it was, and he pointed out it was one of the six in the world, 20 by 24 Polaroid cameras. So I don't see it behind you right now, but for, for anybody who can't wrap their head around this, but I mean, 20 by 24, huge wooden frame, bellows camera, but it shoots Polaroid. When I did some research on a Polaroid review I had done years ago, I had actually been to the 20 by 24 studio website and saw some of these sheets. I mean, um, I, I don't want to keep talking to face. Maybe you could give a better explanation of, of what, how these cameras work and um, maybe what you did there. But I mean, just it, even though I know they exist and even though I've seen pictures of them, I still cannot wrap my head around a 20 by 24 instant photo. And we are talking inches. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Huge camera. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, essentially, I guess what happens is when they make film, they make it in these very wide webs. So the webs can go 80 inches or 44 inches. So I guess Dr. Land, um, before one of his meetings at a certain point, or shareholder meetings at a certain point, wanted to showcase what his film could do. And he told his machinists to come up with a camera that could shoot essentially a 20 by 24 inch Polaroid. So the initial film gets made into 80 inches, which gets cut down to 44. It gets cut again so to 24. And then... You know, then you have eight by tens and four by fives and so on. So that's how, you know, the whole line of products come. Um, so we just pick the 20 by 24 stuff and shoot it in our cameras and do it. Now, to go with the Polaroid film, you have to also have the pods, which any of you who have shot Polaroids will know. It's the little packet that has the developer or reagent actually it's not the developer developer the developer is actually in the paper and the negative um so the reagent is what's in the pod that activates and starts the developing process which has the pigments go from the negative side to the positive side um i wish i had the camera in the back i'm just like <laughs> totally allergy stuck so i didn't go to my studio for this uh but maybe i should have but next time do you remember or have you had any experience or do you recall 
when Polaroid started doing Polaroid copies of artwork. Mm -hmm. Do you remember that? Right. So this is uh, the the copies of artwork was a little before my time. So they actually had another camera that would shoot 44 by almost 80 inches. Um, and it was basically a room camera. And so uh, the rollers were 44 inches wide and the pictures would go up 80 inches. Um, and they used to do a lot of copy work with that. Um, I don't know if you guys know, but right after September 11th, that was like the last time I think the camera was used in a big scale. Uh, Joe McNally shot like Polaroids of the firefighters with that large camera. It was down in New York at that point. Um, we've, I have personally tried to get a hold of it, but um, you know, people don't know where the rollers are, which is actually the main uh, part of the camera that needs to be had, not to mention the film. But the rollers are very important because that's the part that processes the film coming out, as you would know, uh, just like in any small Polaroid camera. So does the large cameras, is it essentially just like um, a normal Polaroid, but larger? I mean, does the film, once it's exposed, do you have to manually pull it down or is it motorized? Like, how does it actually pass through the roller to spread out the reagent? Essentially, what it is, it's a field camera, right? So it doesn't have any rear movements other than uh, you can tilt the rear, but you can, uh, and you can take the whole camera up and down because it's in a studio copy stand kind of way. And but the front of the camera has all the necessary movements that you would normally have for a large format camera. Um, so what we normally do is there is a ground glass in the back. So we normally open up the back of the camera and we focus and you compose. And then once you're ready to shoot, you close the back. When you do that inside the camera, there is a roll of negative that sits on the top of the camera. And um, what we do is we pull the negative down and then you shoot the picture and then you pull the picture out of the bottom of the camera. And this is all mechanized. So there is a little motor that's running the rollers that's okay. spitting right. the picture out. So there is no actual film holder. The film is is like in a roll that's at the top and then comes out the bottom and that that becomes your the actual piece of film that you're working with right so the whole evolution of the camera is it, it's very weird because what it, what started off was uh, what it started off as was an experiment or something that dr len wanted to show the um what do you call that the shareholders at a meeting so they just wanted to get something going so they could shoot a couple of pictures and show the shareholders and I think the original camera was put on a barber chair and they could actually move the camera up and down to make compositions on stage and like, you know, really weird stuff. Um, but how what they made at that point was a large format camera and it had a Polaroid processing unit on the back of it. So, you know how, I, I don't know how many of you should say 8x10, but 8x10, you have this little processor that you carry around with the film. Mm -hmm. And after you shoot it, you take the holder out and you put it through. And the rollers are in the little box processor. And um, okay. so that box is actually in the back of the camera that we shoot with. And it, it goes like, you know, you don't have to take it out or take it off. And it causes a whole bunch of problems. But this has been the way it was done. So uh, there has been, there are field cameras or backs for them that was made. But, you know, 
imagine shooting an 8x10 Polaroid. And now imagine you're shooting a 20x24 with five pounds worth of negative on top, and you're taking that negative holder and putting it in a processor and processing it. It is like, you know, I, you know, that we have that in the lab to test. And um, John, my boss, uh, he's like, oh, yeah, you can take it anytime, shoot with it. And, you know, I would take it out and I'll take it, you know, in my Subaru and very excited to shoot like, you know, a bunch of film. And then you would take one picture and then you'll be like, holy crap, I don't want to take another picture. That's it. <laughs> I just want to wrap up and go. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's, it, it has a lot of problems, but the images are totally worth it but working on yeah. it by yourself is very hard Sorry, what kind of work do you do with it i mean i've seen elsa dorfman's portraits the work that she did are you doing something similar or is it commercial applications or i started working for the studio as a camera tech kind of guy so i did the lighting and uh, like you know ran the camera so basically it's a commercial studio i mean it still kind of is it does exist still. We have a some film and whatever, but we can get into details later. Um, so what you would do is you would rent out, like you make a movie, right? You rent out the grip and um, you have uh, grips come with it and help you light something and shoot the damn film. And that's what, that's what I used to do with the 20 by 24 studio was uh, help people use the camera um, to do photos. Now, Elsa, is a very unique character in what she did because she had her own camera and she did portraits, you know, she ran the camera herself. She's probably, um, other than Jan Nijdo, who's in the Netherlands, I believe, she's the only one that used to r run her own camera and, uh, and made portraits with it, at least the type of camera that we have. So there's six of them. One of them's in New York. So are the other five kind of spread out around the world? Or do you know where the uh, other five are? There's one. Let me see. So I think there's somewhere online. There's, I actually made a list of stuff. I don't know if it's on Wikipedia or something, but there should be a list of where the cameras are. Okay. Let me see. So we can just look it up. <laughs> yeah. New York. There's one, there's one in New York, which is actually a new camera that we had a mammoth camera in California make for us when... Um, you know, we were shooting a lot more in New York over the last 10 years. Um, and then, so that is a newer camera. So that's not an original Polaroid. It's based on the original Polaroid, but it's not the original Polaroid. So the original Polaroids, there's a red, uh, we go by, it, we call it the red camera, which is like the bellows is red. Uh, that's, I have it in my studio. There is one at MassArt. Um, they actually have one of the original Polaroids uh, that they use for, they used to actually um, do a Polaroid class, um, photo class. So they have one. Um, there is one at the MIT Museum. There is one at the Harvard Museum, I believe. There is Elsa's camera, which is currently in Hartford right now, but it's with us. So we actually have three, uh, three 20 by 24 ports. And then there are two in Europe. How many is that? Okay, cool. Now, earlier you had mentioned um, Dr. Land and, and just for anybody who doesn't know the history of Polaroid, Edward Land is the, basically he is Polaroid. He was the guy who created the original camera back in the late forties. Uh, he was a visionary. I mean, the, the things that this guy came up with and was, were able to accomplish just fantastic. You know, his, he released the SX 70 kind of similarly to how like Steve jobs de debuted the iPhone and that like he's on stage, pulls this camera out of his shirt pocket 
pops open the SX 70 and quickly fires off 10, 10 images, you know, of the people in the audience and shows them the results. I mean, you know, just in that sort of like he, the future is now kind of thing. So um, he passed away though, in, I want to say like 90 or 91. Uh, but these cameras, you said it was like his idea to create them. So I imagine these are, I, you said the one that you guys have is newer, but the original ones, do you know about like when they were made? We actually have one of the newer ones, but two of our, we do have two of the originals too. So one is Elsa that the camera that Elsa had. And the other one is the red camera, which was, in New York to shoot at the New York studio when, you know, Polaroid was active and they were shooting in New York. These were probably made in between 75, 80. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Cause I mean, it's, it, it's hard to, you know, I mean, like you described it pretty well based on the pictures I've seen of it. I mean, a field, a large field camera like that, I think most people can kind of picture in their head. I think it's the, the roller system in the back that kind of is what makes it pretty unique. But, you know, just simply seeing such a large camera to think that it could do instant, instant film. And uh, you said it, it starts off on like this huge roll. You know, ev- everybody, you know, collectors, guys like me, you know, we, we miss the original Polaroid and know that finding expired rolls of Polaroid film from 2009 or whenever usually aren't viable. But you, you said you still have some of the film. So I imagine this is stuff that's coming up on 12, 13 years old, right? Right. So what we did was when Polaroid went out of business in 08 or when they, you know, filed for bankruptcy. My boss found an investor and he bought whatever stock of 20 by 24 was available at the time. And um, so that all the negative went to cold storage and uh, we kept the positive to whatever climate controlling we could do, which is, you know, another story on its own. Um, but anyways, but the most important part essentially is the pods, which we did have the chemicals. So okay. a lot of what I did was help uh, you know, whoever was in the production at that time help uh, with the production of the pods. So you mix, you know, we worked with uh, Ted McClellan, who is an old Polaroid uh, chemist. So he got on board and helped, like, you know, try and reinvent uh, or keep going what was, uh, what Polaroid was doing at the time, making the pods for the 20 by 24. How much, how much inventory do you have? <laughs> Too much. It's going to go bad. <laughs> don't say i said that <laughs> because we're not like you know the last two years we haven't shot anything because you know we've been shut down uh we normally do like the new york film festival which is insane because we shoot a lot and uh we haven't done that in the last two years so yeah i think there is we might do it this year who knows i think i'm looking at a picture of chuck close doing a like macro portrait with a red bellows 20 by 24 Right, that so that's yours? the one we have. Yeah, that's the cool. one I have. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, he's uh, he, I, I, oh, I did do a couple of the because he went really crazy and did like really close up of like you know one eye in the whole yeah. Polaroid. Uh, yeah, this thing, looks like. So. I mean, for the size of the bellows, it looks like he's maybe two feet away from the person's face, maybe three. Yeah, you you have to get in. A lot of the times you're using like a. Let's see, we used a 210 on that, I think, or, or, or 360. So you get like really crazy distortions and stuff. Um, yeah. What lens would you actually use to cover a 20 by 24 image? So it, it, it's actually kind of funny when you're working with large format, especially at portrait distances, a lot of lenses cover. It's not like, you know, it's only at infinity that it starts failing. 
Um, okay. But for the cameras that uh, the Polaroid, we use a 600 Fujinon A11, which actually covers uh, at infinity. It might vignette a little bit, but it does cover. Um, but most of the time, we're shooting like you know three quarters or you know close up headshot kind of lens, which is totally fine. And you stop down too; you're not shooting wide open, so the image circle does you know help out a lot. But we do have a we've we have an 800 that works on it too. Uh, setting it up is a little weird because it's one of those old Rodenstock Reaper lenses, um, but it covers. So I, with the cost of the film and the time and everything, you probably are very careful with measuring your exposure, your bellows draw, and figuring out any uh, any bellows factors. You don't want to run a test shot. Let's, you don't want to run a Polaroid, let's put it that way. Right. So we do test because you have to, because you know if you're going to shoot like, 10 or 15 shots in a row, you want all of them. And a lot of the times when we're shooting with clients, it's like just so quick. You have to, you don't even have time to see if the last picture came up, you have to shoot another one. So um, you have to be pretty, pretty spot on. And, uh, you know, after shooting with it for a while, you don't even think about the Bellas factor. It just goes in. <laughs> so you're just metering and going like, okay, this is what we need. And that's what you said. The thing. So you're, you can't be sitting there with a, slide rule trying to calculate like you know that's not you we have like you know rule of thumb so we're like okay every four inches you go out you have to open up a quarter of a stop or a third of a stop and you know most of the time it's in the ballpark so, so what's the latitude on that film like in that case i mean it's, that's it's like shooting slides it's very little so you know you have a little bit of leeway but not a lot and as it ages it just gets worse <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> Now you also mentioned that you you came on as a tech. How much maintenance do these cameras require? I, I imagine they're getting on. In, I mean, with the years getting on, they, they they probably need a bit more love and care these days. Uh, yeah. So just before I came in, I think they replaced the bellows on that camera, and then we had the camera break a couple of years ago. FedEx dropped it, and we didn't see it until like six months later when we were shooting something, and we tried to extend the bellows, and it was like it just fell right off. And I was like, okay, that's not going to work. Um, and then we couldn't use a camera for two years. It does need maintenance, but most of the time we can do it because it's it doesn't get as much use as it used to, which I think like John used to say that the studio would shoot like maybe 100 photos a day. We'd be lucky to shoot 100 photos a month now. So, you know, it's it does not shoot that much photo. And if you take care of it, like, you know, clean the rollers um, every now and then, It'll be fine. And the good thing about big cameras is you have access to everything that's inside it. So it's not like a little Polaroid where you can't see where the developer goes and it sits there and eats it away. And most of the stuff on that camera is either wood, which is the outside, or metal, which is the inside. There's no, hmm, is there any plastic? The ground glass is probably the only thing that's plastic other than that everything is metal. Very cool. I'd imagine, you know, being able to get inside there and keeping them clean, you know, is, is definitely something that would help, you know, prolong their life. But just simply knowing that some of the film is still out there and still viable, just even though I'm never going to see this camera use it myself, just kind of makes me just a little bit happy. Well, if you're if we're in the film festival, we'll be down in New York, I think, September, October. All right. So right now, you know, we have a camera down at the actually, if you, how, is there anyone from New York or no? I don't um, so. there, we do have a lot of those photos up. Uh, okay. So if you want to see live photos, that would be the place to go at the Excellent. Film Film Society of Lincoln Center. 
how are those photos stored? To, uh, because I mean, obviously, a lot of people coming to Polaroid these days are seeing the new Polaroid, which you know, if you you know you blink, it's faded. Uh-huh. What's what's? I mean, the old Polaroid obviously had a lot longer longevity to it. Uh, how are you keeping those to, to make ensure that they don't fade and are lost? Yeah, people want the big original Polaroid, but I, it's always really hard to keep it because it's such a big, unless you have it up on a wall, where are you going to put it? Like that's a pretty big real estate that you can't put anything on top <laughs> of. So it is, it, it is crazy. But, you know, just like most other photographic prints, keep it away from the sun. Um, you put it in the sun, you know, that's it. A lot of the times what we suggest or I personally would do is if you have a Polaroid, like, you know, if you got your portrait taken with a 20 by 24, I would make a digital copy, make a print of it and put that up rather than keeping the original Polaroid. Because, you know, depending on how what the value is and how it goes up, who knows? So that's yeah. just my two cents. Great. Yeah. Thanks, Nafis. I mean, you know, just yeah. like I said, being able to just visualize this camera is is difficult, but I think you did a good job of kind of explaining how it works. And uh, for anybody listening that wasn't even aware that cameras that big uh, even are out there, uh, 20x24studio.com. Uh, are there any other websites that you would recommend people look at if they want to see some more sample images or just ideas of what it looks like? Well, you would get probably a lot of videos that are on there that shows the camera working and people okay. shooting with it. Um, I think there's a Facebook group or Facebook page for the 20 by 24 studio. Okay. Too. I think there might be a whole bunch of videos and stuff there. There's a brilliant documentary on Elsa Dorfman as well. Um, yeah. The B, I think it's called The B-Side. Yeah, yeah. Uh, where she, walk, she, she walks people through the... She technically classes them as the reject photos, but she's kept them and they, they, they look superb. Yeah, he's she's uh she's it, that was a crazy movie too. But that's a good place too uh, to see how the that movie is more about her, but yeah. I think you do see the I think there is a photo shoot that they show there. Um I think I think I'm in it too, but yeah. <laughs> there is there is a shoot that they show there. All right. Yeah, I thankfully didn't have to go outside to work with the camera much. Uh but you know, back in the day, they used to take it out on the sand and yeah. outside, and thank wow. God I didn't have to do that. All right. Well, while we were talking in a feast about large format f- cameras, we saw Jess Ibarra jump back in, and uh, it looks like maybe she has a friend with her. But I also see an empty chair, so perhaps uh, that person went away. But welcome back, Jess. How, how have you been? Hey, how are you guys? Sorry about before. Um, my friend that was here with me was actually Hashen from Pushing Film in Melbourne. And he really wanted to join the conversation, but he had another appointment that he needed to go to. I'm I'm sure he would join us next time because yeah, he he didn't know about the podcast and he's he's really interested to see what it's it's all about. He's the one that ran that portrait session here in Sydney over the weekend, isn't it? Yeah, we did it together with the guys from PA. Uh, I helped a little bit. Um, And yeah, and Hashem, yeah. It was actually real fun. It was so much fun. For people listening, uh, PA is the Photographer Anonymous group here organizes a lot of walks and a lot of uh, events and and you know being known to organize drinks just for the sake of drinks and cameras yeah. so. <laughs> is that like alcoholic anonymous for uh photographer collectors camera collectors yes, yes. <laughs> <Possibly>. <laughs> well jess um so anything new since last time we spoke do you have anything new or have you uh started repairing any new kinds of cameras that you haven't before 
Oh, we do have, uh, I've received all the equipment and all the, I think I can put it maybe in the background for you guys to see, maybe. Let's see if I can, it might be too much light over there, but I've received yeah. all the equipment. As you can see, some of the machines are there for testing shutter speeds and stuff. But yeah, it's it's, it's all happening. We can, we can repair over 2,000 different model cameras now. Very cool have the repair notes and stuff um the superb a that i talked about last time arrived Ooh. oh oh uh, yeah, with a lovely are... gift from the person that that sent it to like you know the sent it to me he also right. this really nice that's um, like a 150 dollar book right there sugiyama's uh collector's guide to japanese cameras oh i didn't know that but yeah that yeah he, that's he that as, a, as a present because he didn't have anything else he, he it's not into film cameras, so I guess anymore. Yeah, I have that book. Um, I'm not going to dig it out, but I mean, you know, when I do a lot of research for cameras, you know, there's certain ones that I come to a lot. Uh, that one's really good. Yeah, here, the McLeod's, McHughes. She's going to come you, back with the McHughes guy. You must, you must have this. Yeah, that's that's the Bible. Yeah, the, 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 the film camera Bible. Every single camera I ever yeah. Mechanical, anyways. If, once yeah. you go, you know, point and shoot some electronic. What's good about the McKeown's guides is, you know, they have as they went on because there's multiple different editions. Yours looks like one of the one of the more recent this ones. Is the latest, the, the yeah. latest one that they ever made. But they're, th they're right. actually talking about bringing a new one out. They've been talking about that for the past five or six years. At yeah, one point, I it know. was going to be an on. It was going to be like five volumes. Yeah, Paul's got one too. Uh, yep. At one point, it was going to be like multiple volumes. They were talking about doing an online version of it too, but I, yeah. don't, I don't know what the holdup. I think he's just kind of yeah. become overwhelmed with stuff. Richard just grabbed his too, so yeah, that's that. That's my favorite shopping list. So yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. Yes. <laughs> for for me though, I I have one of the older guides, um, and for my site, when I'm doing my research, I don't consult the the McKeown's guides as much as I think other people do, simply because. They're more or less just like short, like single paragraphs about a camera, really basic information, just giving you an idea what it was. Uh, they're, they're not very, uh, you know, they don't really get too in depth in certain things, but um, they're certainly terrific for just being able to see all those different, you know, cameras that have been made over the years. It's just so you can know, you know, who the manufacturer was, the yeah. year, that's, that's yeah. pretty much it. They don't, and even the values that they had at that time, they're not comparison to anything now or any time that is not the actual yeah. year where it was made. So. It can be sort of helpful trying to figure out variations in models. I mean, when they, when, when there yeah, are four different. As well, which ones, which model might have a one yeah. particular year or something that's more rare than others. It's, it's good for that, for that sort of thing. Whenever I'm uh, researching cameras online, I, I find there's a lot of links to a French site, Sylvain Halgan. Does anybody, is that, is he a big collector or is he a guy who publishes? Huge collector. He's a huge yeah. collector. Yeah. I, I rarely find there's a camera he hasn't got in his collection, to be honest. It's actually quite amazing. So uh, quite quite a decent collection. But uh, Mike, I thought MikeEckman.com was going to replace the McEwan's Guide. I thought you were, <laughs> that was the plan. <laughs> no. no, I, I could never uh, even come close to all the stuff he's had. When I do research, though, you know, because I like the history, so I like the books that kind of go more into in, in depth. You know, Peter Kitchenman was on the show. Uh, I got his book. That's fantastic. There are a bunch of different ones. Robert's Nikon rangefinder guide, Peter Deckert's um, Canon rangefinder guide. Uh, for If you like stories, though, if you like the history of, of old cameras, 
I'm a big fan of Jason Schneider's camera collecting um, you know, articles. Really yeah, he he posted in Modern Photography and then later Pop Photo uh, when Modern went out of, you know, was shut down and he would do the camera collector column. And, and he was kind of like, he did similar to sort of like what I did. Like he would talk a little bit about an old model, a little bit of the history, a little bit of the story, but he started publishing three volumes of books. And this one's the first one. I think this one was made in 78, but basically all it really is, is just reprints of his articles from those old magazines, but he goes into pretty good detail telling you a little technical information, a little bit of history, what's great about it, you know, and, and I, 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 that's the kind of stuff that I really like. So while the McKeown's guides are great, the, the Sugiyama book is, is really, really good too. Those are more or less, like Paul said, they're good for telling you about variants, you know, being like an identification guide, but they don't go too in depth. So Jess, how's that superb? Does it look like it's in uh, shooting order? Yeah, it's actually, um, I've actually have a roll of film in there right now. So I'm, I'm, I'm testing it as it, as we go. Um, oh, it looks, a- it looks very, very good. I love how the parallel gets corrected by this right. little yep. lens. On the front, you can see it kind of uh, sagging a little bit as it's all the way out. I'll explain it because it's hard to see, but anybody who can't see this, but the, the Superb is a, a twin lens reflex, like a Roloflex, but the viewing lens and the reflex mirror and the ground class are kind of like in a separate cage that's hinged. And as you focus yeah. the camera, as you get closer and closer to minimum focus, the entire front of the viewing lens tilts down a little bit. So like TLRs famous are, you know, for parallax error, uh, the Mamiya cameras and a few others would have like a little needle that would move or a line. Sometimes that would indicate, you know, to kind of help you understand where the top of your image is at close focus. But Fotlander designed the entire top part of the camera to tilt forward tilt at forward, close focus. Yeah. And then it tilts back as you get closer to infinity, which I think is probably a very complicated way of doing it, but it works really, really well. Does the camera focus closer than most TLRs? As- no, I, th- I think it still only goes down. No, to it's still feet. the same. I think um, minimum focal distance is, let me see, about two and a half feet. Two and a half. Oh, that's not the a little closer. closer yeah. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. But it's just beautifully made. They didn't, they didn't cheap out on anything. Like everything the person wanted, you can see on the camera, they got right. that they wanted, you know, there's, there's so many intricate bends and like, yeah, you know, in, in the camera, especially where the film or the film sits and yeah. It travels horizontally. I can only imagine that they probably didn't make any money out of this, but the guy that made it had so much fun. <laughs> now, is that, does it have the Scopar or the Heliar? It has Scopar. Gopar, okay, yeah. I mean, they're all very, very, very good, but the Heliars, that's $1,000 and up for those. Fantastic camera. I'm glad you like that. That's that's one that I know Anthony's been yearning for forever. I'm sure I will get over it soon, and then I will I will I will message Anthony. <laughs> I think it's one of the most beautiful TLRs ever built. That and the and the, the contacts are just stunning. Just a word of warning: if Anthony ever visits you, make sure you check him on the way out. One TLR that I had was a Rolly a Telly Rolly. I regret selling that yeah. many years ago. Those are really, really nice. Um, a second, maybe favorite pretty TLR is the Ansco Automatic Reflex 3.5. Those are really gorgeous too. And uh, I have one more. I'll get it in a second here. This is the only TLR, I think, that Fuji ever made. It's called the Fuji Flex. 
So it actually looks quite a bit like the Ansible automatic reflex. It's very large. It's bigger than like a roller flex does. Uh, we'll have pictures of this uh, on the Instagram, but it's got this really kind of neat fifties ish, you know, looks sort of like a, like a drive-in movie theater. Like a flex logo. Kind of, kind yeah. Of it's got the Art Deco. This has, uh, a Fujinar F2.8 lens taking and viewing. Does the nameplate bend over the top of that, right? The nameplate is it has a curve to it. Yeah, it does. It's it's curved down. That's beautiful. It's got a depth of field scale on the side that as you turn it, it you know it spins to kind of you know give you that. Um, it just it's really really cool. Uh, another feature that's really neat about this camera is. On the side of it is your focusing wheel, you know, like you would expect a TLR to, but the focusing wheel doubles as the film advance. So you push it in and you turn it and it moves the lens back and forth like you would expect, but you pull it out and then it turns into the film advance knob. So you pull it out, twist, wow. cock the film, push it back in, and now it focuses again. Oh, I think some, some older Bronicas have something like that. Oh, do they? Okay. Yeah. They probably borrowed that. Uh, then, I can see so. myself getting into trouble with that. That would be quite complicated to repair if, if that part went. Oh, I'm sure. Bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But that, you know, there, there are, unfortunately, the Rollies were so popular. There were millions and millions of copies that are, you know, variations on the same theme. Uh, but with, with few exception, you have the Fultlander Superbs, the Ansco Automatic Reflexes. Uh, Konica had that Omega TLR thing was huge. Um, you know, there are some other ones out there for, for people who like that waist level format that, you know, break up the monotony of Caloflex. Yeah. Mark's holding up a Caloflex. So that's, that's Koa, right? Yeah. Yeah. This one's is really a heavy one for the size. Yeah. I really like the it's design of it. The, yeah. The yeah. And then the, uh, and it has the, again, the focus on the side here and then this little weird lever for advancing the film. Okay. And the lever sits up instead of down. It sits in the yeah. opposite. Yeah, that's, yeah, I love all those things about all the different cameras and the little differences. Does anyone have a flexoret from Czechoslovakia? I do. It's one I of my seven. It's I a do. fantastic yeah. camera. I've got a seven as well. I'm pretty sure I have one of my in my storage unit. That's that's, a that, that's one that's intrigued me. I've never seen one. It's it's also got that like really classic Art Deco styling. Uh, you know, mine's got the gray and the black with the, the all the curves and swoops on the front, and it's also a very capable camera. You know, it's. Uh, takes you know it's it's a solid camera it, even though you can pick one up for around a hundred dollars uh even from like from Kupog, the guy that we deal with in slovenia that that you have there what that's uh, that i'm very interested on uh, that well Mike, mike's bringing out the uh the big guns. so i have a, a welta superfecta which um it was a loner of a a reader of my site and fan of the, the show, James Thorpe, sent me. He said, I have a Superfecta and I have a Perfecta. He goes, would you like to try one? So I'll show you both of them. I have, this is the Perfecta. It's a TLR, but it's it expands. Yeah, uh, and that one just spins, right? It doesn't have movement. So this one pops open. It's a six by six TLR, but it's folding. So it folds up. So it's a little bit more compact than a normal TLR would be. But then you have this monstrosity of the <laughs> Superfecta. So you can see it's a bellows camera. The film is in here. It's six by nine, though. It's not six by six. So if you shoot it like this, you get six by nines in portrait orientation, or you can spin it 
and you could then <laughs> rotate the back 90 degrees and shoot six by nines in landscape. Uh, get out of it. I just, I got gas big time. I just, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> don't, don't look here. up the I'm prices gonna... of these. Oh. <laughs> and you probably won't be able to see it, but there's actual, so it has a six, a square ground glass, but it shoots six by nines. So as you rotate this somehow, I don't know how the internal linkage works. I, this would be a repair nightmare, but there's these, I'll just Oh no, I think it'll be a repair dream. I would love to see how that works. So in, in, in landscape, it's like this, but as you twist it, it they go like this. Oh, and so you there's can these, see it happening in the You view, see them that. move in the viewfinder. So there's like these masks. Yeah, like on a Mamiya RB, yeah. Okay, it's a, all right, so it's someone else. I've never seen one of those, but you have these masks. You're, you're saying, Mike, that they actually move as you, as they you move. twist it. They move. They move. Wow. They physically move. So you're so looking, mechanical. They're mechanical. It's mechanical. Yeah. Right. There's some kind of linkage that as you twist it, the these, these baffles or whatever they are, they go from like this, if you're in portrait, to like this into landscape on on like twist twist it much more slowly than that twist it much more slowly than that <laughs> yeah I, I wish it is kind of dark and I, there's no way i would get you know people listening to the show can't see it anyway but i will definitely have a review of these up later this year he sent me two each Ooh. so oh. if one of doesn't work I have a backup. just in case you get one that breaks yeah yeah so thanks james if, if you listen to this show uh you were spreading gas uh, all the way down to uh, land down under too. <laughs> so, all right. Well, we, that's the TLR hour. <laughs> hey, I got a question for Dan Tree. The yeah. last time he was here, Dan was going. Uh, you were going to go on. A, you were taking a short trip to San Francisco. Yep, I believe, and uh, he was trying to decide whether to take the Leica M6. I totally was out. And as I recall. I saw a picture of you sitting, standing in front of the Leica store in San Francisco, shooting with what? It was with the, with the Fuji X100V. So you didn't take the M6? No, I was out about it. I did, I did get this very exclusive water bottle from the Leica Ooh. store. That's all, that's all I could really afford at this time. Yeah, I just, and I'm kind of glad I did because there was, we went not into like super sketchy areas, but just areas that I didn't feel, I wouldn't have felt comfortable taking any photos. So so I brought my uh, Nikon uh, FM2 um, and had a blast. So um, it's, it was actually good because I also shot with my Pentax 6.7 out and about as well. And I've had I've gotten into trouble a few times where I go from an SLR to a uh, rangefinder and I miss focus because I forget to. Um, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, I ended up kind of chickening out with uh, bringing in the Leica with me. Yeah, Dan. Just before I got my M3, I went to the Leica store in Boston. And realized that I couldn't even afford uh, a camera strap. Yeah, yeah. There were some half-body uh, cases I was tempted by, but I, I, I pretty much am said I have a Sumicron, uh, uh, you know, at fifty. Um, so I, they did let me handle a, a MP, which was um, super scary. Uh, like I'm, I'm now really jonesing for that one day. So um, I think uh, it's ridiculously expensive, but it would be awesome to buy a, a new camera. And then I picked up this at uh, Glass Key Photo uh, uh, XA4. Um, so that, that, that was kind of my one, you know, memento from some uh, San Francisco for from a camera shop. So have you shot it yet? I went uh, on my bike today and shot with it. I have an XA and an XA2 and love them both. So um, I, I was kind of excited to 
that they had one of these in stock. So I've, I've had my yeah. four for about three weeks now and I've run two rolls through it and I've been really, really happy with what I get from it. Yeah. They, I was, I was surprised. I say too, I was nervous about with the zone focusing, but I, I took it on my last trip uh, with the family last year and I just loved every photo from it because they were just so candid and, and still uh, I thought great photos. Uh, so having the XA4 with that little bit more wide angle, I'm pretty excited about. Did you get the uh, measuring hand strap with it as well? No. Well, I actually did. I forgot. I left it there. And then they, I, I mentioned it to them and they're going to mail it to me. So is that what that, the that strap? Right. It's so that when you go for the tightest uh, macro, it's just like oh, on a cool. Minox. It's like on a Minox where you just hold the end those little to beads. your subject. It's got like a red bead on the end. Okay. Then you're exactly in focus for that. I, I noticed that it was missing from my uh, purchase. So I, I kind of called him and said, Hey, so they're, they're mailing me the strap, which is awesome. So you can have like, like real friend, like portraits with that. I've been like, you really get up in the person's face and you touch the, the red dot to their nose and they're yeah. in focus. Yeah. The seven-year-old will love that. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> James Allen. We haven't heard from you. Anything new? Put you on the spot here. Sorry. Yeah. 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 Uh, <laughs> you got to have your gas on standby. Yeah, I know. James is a, James is a Miranda guy. So we, we, we can always <laughs> fall back on the Mirandas. But, yeah. But, for sure. Well, I'll give you a hint. Uh, it has a screw mount lens and it has a secret shutter speed. Uh, SP 500. Oh, oh that's an S1A. Oh, an okay. S1A. Yeah, yeah. Got it at Goodwill for $38. What's the secret shutter speed on an S1A? thousand. Same as the SP 500. Yeah. Yeah, it's not marked. I was thinking of the, what's the Fuji screw mount SLR that's got the one seven hundredth shutter speed? ST601, ST605. Okay, all right. I always laughed, like, was that supposed to be 1,000th and they just couldn't quite get it? So they just said, <laughs> eh, we'll just say 700. I don't know. That's just, that's bizarre. They already printed the shutter speed dial, so they just yeah. decided to keep it. <laughs> <laughs> but no, there are some Pentaxes that... Uh, they're only indicated 500, but there's one extra unmarked click that supposedly is just 1,000 mm. cost cutting, I guess. Okay, and the other one, um, picked this up at a flea market. It's the Argus 21. Theo, you were looking for one of those. That's the Mark Finder, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. What do you think of it? It's got the removable lens you can use in your uh, enlarger. Right. It's yep. got a screw mount, but it does. It's not a screw mount for the camera. It's you could take the lens off and put it on a larger, like you said. Oh yeah, yep. And then uh, there was one I've been lusting at for a, for for a while. I finally got one. It's the uh, Vito two. Okay. Oilander Vito two. Yeah, yeah with the scope nice. This one has the uh, oh, it's the Compo Rapid shutter on it. Excellent. The Vito two was uses regular thirty five millimeter, but a lot of people don't know that the Vito one uses unperforated thirty five millimeter. Is, well, it can use perf too, but yeah, it, can use perf as well. It doesn't have the sprockets, right? Right. So if you wanted, you could put unperf in it, but it's still a normal 20, 24 by 36 image. You you have you have a Vito one, Anthony? Yeah, I've got 12 Vito variations. Okay. All right. So He's got the one, two, and three. You wouldn't like Voigtline the bunny chance, would you, Anthony? No, no. <laughs> I was out shooting today with, the, with uh, it was actually a camera that, that Michael Kaplan sold me. That's the, uh, the Vito BR. And it was an extremely limited run of a, of a Vito B with a rangefinder. Um, it was just made for just a few months before they introduced the Vito-Matic. So it's like it's like my platonic idea of, of a compact uh, rangefinder. No meter, you know, it's just, it's just like the perfect size for travel. Uh, and it's got a very accurate uh, rangefinder. 
what the color scope are. Can you see the patch clearly? I, I've had two Vitomatics, and both of them had the silvering fading or coming off, and you could hardly see the the rangefinder patch. No, I mean this one's as as bright as you know. It's not as bright as my M3, but it's it's bright. Certainly nice. very certainly very usable. Howard, my Vitomatics just like yours. It's it's almost like it's not. In fact, the first time I picked it up, I didn't even realize there was a rangefinder until I pointed at the sun. And then I could see a faint double image, but that seems it's a, either. I think that camera either is, is perfect or it's just gone. Cause it's a, there's no mirrors in there. It's just a huge block of glass. Yeah. For, for that reason, I sort of turned towards the, the, uh, the Vito B and Vito BL because they're, I, I might as well just use a, I use, I, I actually acquired a Voigtlander external rangefinder that I yeah. stick on the shoe for those. And then I've got everything. Really nice. Is there a trick to the the Vito BLs like to the light meter? Um, like are they? I have one, but I can't make sense of the light meter. Could be just not working. If it's got the Beva, the uh, B E W A, it's got like a red button in the center that you have to press uh, okay. to activate the meter. Okay, and it gives oh, you an EV. Yeah, yeah. Th this is the one that it's uh, you got to push the button on the meter. Wait, am I looking at the right one? Yeah, the Bui meter. You got to push this little button on the back. There's no needle to look at. What happens is the dial spins in, and it's a selenium meter, no battery. And oh. then uh, all the combinations of shutter speed and aperture are just shown after the dial stops spinning. That's neat. And uh, the one I've got seems to work fairly accurately, actually. Yeah, mine's also fairly accurate. But the two, the two is a really cool camera because the two folds down so small. It's like it's it's actually smaller than like a Retina three uh, when it folds up. Uh, you know, so it's just like a very pocketable, very capable camera. Um, I, I shoot with mine fairly often. Yeah, I think I'm always on the lookout because one of the cameras I've been wanting is a Rolly 35. And I've had three chances to buy them. And every time I just change my mind. And I think it's a sign that I should need to give up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, I just I think just the idea of them uh, just sounds amazing. So if you are fine with scale focus, the Rolly 35s are great. You know, Paul, you've talked a number of times, you, you, they just don't agree with you. But if you can handle scale focus, honestly, you could attach a rangefinder to it if you want. I mean, it would be on the bottom. It'd be kind of weird. Honestly, though, I don't think you need it. As long as you're not trying to do close-ups, um, the Rolly 35s are really good. I just published a review a couple weeks ago of the Petri Color 35, which is very, very similar to the Rolly 35. Um, I need to thank you for that. I, I had one. I think I mentioned it the first time I was on the okay. show. I, I wanted to know what you thought of it. Yeah. Anyways, I, I didn't really like it. Like, it was okay, and it, uh, but I didn't like it as much as the Rolly 35. And I just hung, I, I couldn't sell it. Nobody wanted to buy it. And I hung on to it, hoping you would do a review. <laughs> After you did the review, I, I, I put links to your review in my ad. Oh, did I sold you? it the next day. Oh, wow. Did you get a decent amount for it? No, I, I got what I paid for it, but that, okay. I was just well, happy fine. to sort of get out. Yeah, I, I compared the two quite a bit in the article, so I won't repeat too much here. But uh, the Petri has some ergonomic and usability improvements that do make it a, a little bit more enjoyable to use. Uh, but it does come at the expense of two things. The lens just isn't as sharp. You know, even the, it's a 40 millimeter four element lens, just like the Tessars are, but it's not a Tessar, uh, the Petri lens, which surprises me because Petri cameras, even the ones that don't work, usually the only good thing you can say about the Petris is they usually would have good, good lenses, but oh, my, the color 35s. Color, yeah. My color corrected 1.9 is my favorite color. Is excellent. Yeah. Millimeter. 
Mm-hmm. I've got several to get. I mean, I have one that I bought that's pretty much in amazing shape, yeah. which made me buy more to find that they're all broken. Yeah, I have like five variants of that camera. I have the DeJure one. I have the EBN that has the selenium meter on, like actually on the camera. Uh, and I have a couple other of the Petri variants, but the color corrected one nines are really, really nice. But the color 35, just, I don't know. I, 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 and I've heard that from other people too. They say that it's just not quite as sharp. Well, then I'll, I'll, I'll keep the hunt then. I, I just, I want to find one in, in good shape with, with the best lens. If I'm going to pull the trigger on it, I want to do it once. Okay. You know, for sure. But there's the Petri that, it, um, you know, when I wanted to shoot. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, uh, one that Johnny system was a little jealous of, so he wanted to maybe buy it. And I'm like, no, <laughs> Johnny went a little crazy on the, he called them the green omatics. Um, well, I had but a laugh it, you know, when I was at the store looking at him. I, I looked up his review without realizing what I was looking at. And then I was like, Oh, okay. So I'll pull the trigger. <laughs> on it. I so, sold one of mine to him too. So I don't know how many yeah. he's got now, but he went through a phase where he really liked those cameras. And it's such a shame too, because on rare occasion, Petri did make some pretty good cameras. Just usually they didn't. Yeah. <laughs> to get back to the Roy 35s, I see, I see quite a few of them. And uh, my rating system on Roy 35s is one to eight, and what that or zero to eight. And what that is, the number of corners that are dented. Yeah, yeah. that's and the, the one they had at um, the camera shop in San Francisco, Glass Key, it had two dented corners, which is kind of why I decided. I've never seen an eight, and I think I've only seen two or three zeros. Yeah. So it's usually it's usually between three and five, I think that uh, that you find dented corners. It's got to be because the camera is so small. And they're just knocking around in the camera bag. You know, well, next I, I think they switched to aluminum from brass at some point, and it's soft. Did. You know, the yep. Singapore ones are more likely to dent. Um, they did some cost cutting, and, and people carry them by a wrist strap, and so they bang against things. You know. Yeah. I, I hate to admit this. I have shame, but one of the co- dented corners on mine is from me. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so it happens. So it's kind of like getting a new car. It's like you got you always got to wait for that first scratch just to get it out of the way. But so I dented one of my corners. The camera will probably be fine for the next fifty years. But but if you want to buy one to use, I I would look for one with with you know one or two dents because pre-dented. it rarely yep. breaks them. Yeah, and then, oh, yeah, and no. it brings the value down to something right. you can afford. A little more affordable, absolutely. Yeah, I I agree with you 100. Pre dented really 35s are worth it. So, um, Dan, you said that you were still kind of hoping to get one one day. Yeah, I'm just trying to keep an eye out, um, find one with the the S S lens, S E lens. Uh, oh, right you're going to spend a lot of money on that. I know. <laughs> I, I'm a bit contrarian in that I I I have the the 35 S. The lens is great. I would not get the S E. First of all, I think it doesn't look as nice because it's got that battery cover on the top. Uh-huh. But second is the Roly is designed for you to have it away from your eye to look down to see all the setting. And to have the exposure LEDs in the viewfinder doesn't really help. So I, I think I think it's just adding sort of needless complexity. But that's- uh, I, I really wasn't sure which one was. Yeah, the SE is what they had at Glass Key. But yeah, I'll, I'll look for uh, an S at some point. Yeah. And if you want a good value, get a pre-dented T. Because yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I, I will admit, I've never even so much as handled a sonar-equipped Roly 35, but the images I get from my Tessar Roly are, it's probably one of the best Tessars I've ever shot. I just, I can't fathom that the sonar looks that much better to justify the double or even triple prices sometimes they fetch. And I also have the uh, the Xenon 
or the Xenar, the Schneider. The Schneiders are less common, but they have the Schneider, the four element Schneider too, which are, which yeah. you, you loan me yours, Anthony. Yeah. Uh, and that, that one works really, really well. So does the Tessars. So as always, it's the dangerous place for my wallet. Okay. <laughs> Camera anonymous. I, I had the B35, the one with the, the three element triotar lens that they don't go for much. Uh, people slag them, but to tell you the truth, it, it performed fine. I, I got the S because it came up at a good price, but I mean, uh, I don't do close-ups with Raleigh's. So uh, the fact that it's a three element lens and I, and I'm not shooting it wide open. I'm shooting it usually in sunlight at f8. It was fine. I would just use use mine for street and and landscape and that kind of stuff. Anyways, not not a lot of portrait stuff. Yeah, I, I just used mine to shoot a roll of uh, Fuji Velvia 50 that I red scaled. So the question is, <laughs> can you red scale Velvia 50? Yes. Should you? Probably <laughs> not. <laughs> I've got a Roly 35 LED. With uh, it's a zero on Paul scale. These don't dent because they're not worth anything. <laughs> <laughs> I did pick up recently this Sears Auto Thirty Five. You know, so it's it's a pretty similar, I think. To <laughs> well, hold that up to the camera. I, a Sears is that a Rico? Yeah, it's yeah. a Rico. Okay, yeah. the the one that I have to replace. Those are like, nice. Tons of gummed up uh, yeah. light seal on the back, like. Oh yeah, so I'm that's a Rico trademark. Yeah, is that the same as the Rico 500G, but it's rebranded, or it's a different camera? Uh, I think that's a rebranded Hymatic. Oh, yeah, okay. Oh, Hymatic sorry, no, one, it's not a Rico. No, no, okay. no Hymatic, not Hymatic. Uh, high color, high, high color, high too. color. Oh, okay, so that's not the high same. High color. No. Yeah, I, I have the 500G. It's a rangefinder with tons and tons of foam inside. The entire back of the the door is yeah. one big, huge piece of foam that completely crumbles yeah and this nightmare. one is the the winding like uh the clockwork winding oh like, okay all of this is a light seal that's just yeah, uh, yeah. gummy and gross so i don't i don't really think this is going to take the place of a of a R- rolling 35 but I'm, no. I'm looking forward to shooting with it well we've got mark beetle joining us from the, the united kingdom where it's like three o'clock in the morning yeah I've, i'm busy i'm at work you see ah. <laughs> So I've just been listening. I, I kind of wanted to just get a quick question in because I understand you just bought an Airax from uh, from Kiev, from from U- Ukraine. Well, it, it was already on eBay in the UK. So it's a bit of a cheat, but, you know. Yeah. It's been fun. I've shot all three of me backs in one day um, and they've all got light leaks. So <laughs> <laughs> now fixing them while I'm here. So which Airax is it? Is it the 88C? Or- yeah, 88CM. Okay, does does that one have can you explain like to someone who doesn't understand like what is an Airax? Um yeah, so it's like a, it's a, well quite a bit upgrading to a um to a regular Kiev 88 with the Pentacon 6 mount. Uh, so you get a whole host of amazing glass for it, which I've found out um with my Flectagon and Sonar. Amazing. Absolutely love it. The change it's 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 almost customized some of it. They've got like mirror lockup as well, which is a massive thing. You can imagine the size of a mirror and them things. It's the, the slap is unbelievable. You kind of shoot below 130th. So they upgrade a few things. They replace the lens mount. I imagine that they lube and make them. Because these are original Kiev yeah. cameras that they have sort of CLA plus, so to speak, them, right? Yeah. Yeah. They're not completely brand new cameras. They're just recently nude. Yeah. They actually re- almost rebrand them, don't they? Right. Other than Kiavetti. Yeah, I think they do. Yeah, I did I did hear in the last few days though that they've um have paused the factory. It started up again. 
You set it up, a guy has it. Yeah. They just did a post uh, on Facebook the other day saying they're kind of back up and running, you know, as best as they can. And they're able to get things out, you know, here and there. But, you know, obviously it changes probably daily. Did they replace the bacon grease with, you know, more modern <laughs> bacon grease? It's fish. Modern it's bacon fish grease. grease. <laughs> yeah. <It's> grease. <laughs> So have have has anybody like been compelled to shoot any Ukrainian cameras recently? I know we talked about that briefly. Uh, I was pushing the Fed too. Uh, the Kievs are certainly good too, but um, I know a lot of people were kind of taking out their um, the Ukrainian cameras. Well, I have obviously because I have, was shooting yeah. Soviet stuff. <laughs> All right, uh, yeah, I've had my I've had my Fed uh, Fed two out. And uh, I'm careful. Let me ask you a question then. This came up. Uh, Theo and I are in a kind of a private chat with other photo bloggers. And um, Alyssa from Ali's Vintage Camera Alley had, had posed a question to the group. She had been working on a review of Silbera film and uh, coincidentally a KMZ start that I had loaned her about six months ago. And she's... Um, she takes her time writing her reviews as do I. So she's been working on both of these articles now for three, four months. And she's afraid, not afraid, but she was had trepidation about releasing reviews about like, you know, Russian Soviet cameras, given the climate of the world. Like, you know, people are like, Hey, let's shoot our Ukrainian cameras. But like, do you think that there's um, a, a negativity towards Russian cameras right now? Or, or, you know, do you feel pretty strongly like, it's a completely different era. Let's not confuse the two. Yeah, I'm, I'm in the latter camp. Um, I do feel like a lot of the people who lived through the Cold War tend to seem to have this, oh, no, it's all evil Russians. Not like myself. I'm, I mean, I'm 31. This, we, my generation don't seem to feel it, um, who are shooting the Soviet cameras. So, I mean, I went to a demonstration in Newcastle the other day, pro-Ukraine, and I, was, I, I didn't even think, but I was using a so-called two. And it, it, I had no issues. Yeah. They could all read it. I don't think people care so much. I think it's just we sort of, in our community, make a big deal out of things. Yeah, and that's that was the advice we gave her, I think, Stephen Dowling. Theo, you saw that interaction, right? We just kind of said, just do it. You know, I mean, there's a huge difference between then and now. You're shooting cameras which are old and, and you're supporting individuals. You're not, you're not necessarily supporting right. any sort of war movement or anything no. like that. Plus a really interesting cameras as well. So what's not to enjoy about it? Yeah, I, I've actually been shooting uh, myself with the LCA uh, recently. I, I grabbed some um, Kodak Gold uh, 200 and uh, red scaled it in there just to try and get a bit of an effect. And I, I, I have no problem. I, I'm not getting any sort of feedback from anybody seeing me running around with an you know, original LCA and saying you're, you're supporting um, anything untoward. I have a camera called a Moskva. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I don't know if I should be afraid to take it out now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think people really care when you're out shooting with them. I think they just look at you like you're an alien anyway, don't they? They tend to wonder what it is. I, I was actually um, yeah. in the park uh, yesterday shooting with um, with a Plowball Makina, one of the original S2s. I've got it right here, actually. I'm, I'm actually going to circle back to something um, uh, Mike said earlier about the strange shutter speeds on, you know, the I think it was the Fujis. This one's got a really weird apertures of all things it's got you know it starts off at 2.9 and 4.5 it then goes to f6 f9 f12 and then f16 and all one and then f25 which um i've never seen before that that is a, a real weird one there was a, a kodak had a had an aperture system in the early part of the 20th century that wasn't f-stops and it, it had numbers like that I, but this is a this is what a 
This is a Soviet camera, or no, no, this is a German camera um, from the 1930s. Is it, it oh. Theo? Is it an Antikamar lens? It is a Antikamar lens. It is too. Okay. Gorgeous, gorgeous camera. I may be totally wrong. I could be totally wrong, but my guess would be that the potentially relates more towards DIN or Ghost more accurately because I've got some pre pre war feds with the un the uncoated lenses and they they are also like. F9s, 12s. Pretty common to see kind of goofy uh, F-stops. You know, you, you go with the really old Kodaks. There was what was called the U.S. scale. That's what I was thinking of, yeah. Yeah, it has nothing to do with U- United States. It's U- like universal standard scale. The numbers were a lot higher. So like you'd see like 64, but that was really more like F-22. There's, you can, you can look it up on Wikipedia. There's an article somewhere that kind of has a conversion, but the U S system sort of fell out of favor around like the 19 teens, the F system was pretty common. So your Plowbell Theo, I'm sure it is F stops. It's just, they were less likely to follow that mathematical one, four, two, two, eight. Um, you know, even Argus's Argus cameras up until about the war, you'd see like F 18, F six, three, you know, numbers that are just, you just don't as easily see anymore. I saw an article, like sometimes I forget, like, which is a full stop. You, you know, F three, five lenses are really common. Um, you know, F one, nine, you know, the, if, if ever you're struggling to remember the F scale, all you ever have to do is remember the number one and the number 1.4. And you keep alternating back and forth between the two doubling each time. So F one, one, four, two, two, eight, four, five, six, and so on. And that's how the scale goes. When we were teaching photography, one of the, one of the things we always, that was fun to, to get their attention was to say that F-stops, learning about F-stop made you a very informed buyer of pizzas. <laughs> because you could price out what's, what is, what's better to get two 8-inch pizzas or one 11-inch pizza because they're exactly the same amount of pizza. That's true, yeah. So I never thought of it that way. There you go. We're providing a, a, a community service here. <laughs> so, um, but one thing I did notice about that blah blah is um, it's interesting ergonomics. Um, and I think Anthony, you sort of sent me a, a note on that in one of our chats. Um, ergonomics in the 1930s, it wasn't quite on their high priority list because um, I bought a uh, 120 back for it and all the dials are underneath. So as soon as you stick, stick the, the, the back on it, the whole thing just tips over. So once you're once you've actually started shooting with it in your bag, you're committed to finishing the whole roll. I think you're supposed yeah. to lay it on its back. Yeah, but it's so pretty, and those dials on the back are so pretty as well. You don't <laughs> want to do that. <laughs> well, and if you have the roll film back on it too, it sticks out even further. You know, whereas yeah. the sheet isn't quite as big. I'm I'm interested to know what Dan's doing. He's got his looks like he's walking around his house. <laughs> he's on mute. We're, we're putting my uh, son to bed, so I had to change rooms. Oh, okay. All right. my camera back. No problem. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, my yeah. kids are probably close to bed, too. <laughs> hey, Mark. Uh, Mark Faulkner. Have you had any updates? A couple of weeks ago on a previous show, you talked about those spool uh, adapters you had created that would allow you to use larger formats of roll film in Patterson tanks. Do you have any feedback uh, or thoughts on those? Yeah, I mean, as you know, Adam Paul was testing out a couple of them. They worked fine. I posted the STL files on my website so people can download and print them themselves. Or if somebody wants them, I can print them for a nominal fee. I'm going to completely go off topic here. Um, Chris, um, Christopher Paulin, he was on the show 
couple times ago just sent me a message earlier today saying he has completely listened to every episode of the Camerosity podcast from start to finish, even the first two cocaine and waffles episodes. So (laughs) I haven't listened to some of those old ones probably since shortly after we did it. So, uh, Christopher is our super fan of the day going back to all of our, uh, our back, our back issues, listening to them. So, uh, thanks for the support, Chris. I have, I have a question. Sure. Um, I read an article. I spent years ago. I read an article about the way, uh, the Soviets made cameras. And what the article was saying was that their approach to building cameras was different than in the free world. And like in the free world, it's supposed to work right out of the box. You know, I mean, you take it out of the box, it's ready to go. But in the communist way was they made it rough. They just made it rough to get it out the door. And the cameraman in your city fine tuned it. Okay, so so depending on how good your cameraman was or or whoever that cameraman was, how good he was is depends on how, you know, it makes it whether, you know, how good that camera is. So I'm seeing these ones on eBay that that are sealed still in the box. And I'm wondering if, if they even work. Wouldn't touch them. <laughs> I mean, is there any truth to that at all? Um, well, a couple of things. I don't ever think that was the intent, but that practice was very common, especially later. Uh, a lot of the Kiev rangefinders would would basically roll out of the factory in non-working condition, and local shops would buy them, fix them, you know, get them up to spec, and then resell them, you know, at, at a premium. So. That practice definitely occurred. I don't believe, and you know, this would be a Vlad question, uh, but I feel pretty confident saying that wasn't the intent. Uh, one thing that I think is hard to understand for Westerners about communism is that in a nutshell, you sort of had a purpose. Like there wasn't a free market, right? So if you made a camera, you didn't make it to compete with somebody else making a camera. You made a camera because that's just what you did. So they would they would make this stuff and create Helios lenses into stars, Fed range finders, Kiev range finders, regardless if there was demand for it. So I think that at some point, especially towards the end, of the Soviet era where maybe the quality control was non-existent. A lot of that old machinery didn't work anymore, but they just kept making it. You know, there wasn't in a free market. If you don't make a good product, no one will buy it. And then you lose money on it, but they, they didn't have those, those parameters, so to speak. So the reason you see a lot of, uh, I have one right here. Here's a Kiev 35A in the original box. You know, it's got its original sticker on it with these drawstrings on it. You'll see a lot of this stuff on eBay still in the original box. And this one doesn't work. A lot of them oh. didn't work. So I don't I don't think it's true to say that this was made specifically so that camera technicians had something to do. I think that ultimately ended up happening, though. Uh, I think it had more to do with just they would just make stuff and they just, just probably went into a warehouse somewhere. I was just wondering. I've heard in general, like new in box of any camera manufacturer is bad because like that camera has been sitting unused and the oil's coming right. up for 30, 40 years. Yeah. You know, that, that you you kind of want that camera that some guy's been shooting with for the last yeah. 20, 25 years because that thing's working, you know, and will continue working. We talked about that with Dan uh, on the last episode that 
Uh, if you want a camera to use, buying a, a Mint Tap Mint Plus Plus Plus, you know, new old stock camera, uh, you're probably going to have problems with it, you know. But if you get a camera with brassing, a camera that's a little bit worn out, uh, not only has it been used, but you got to remember too, especially with old mechanical cameras, that although you know there's that saying they don't make them like they used to things back then were meant to last that's true however they were also meant to be serviced if you bought an old leica or you bought a camera range for i see just on her head nobody bought a camera back then and thought i'm gonna go 50 years without ever having to fix this thing you know people would bring cameras in as as part of just regular maintenance right you take your car for a tune-up change the spark plugs flush the coolant flush the transmission fluid you know you have to do regular maintenance so back then people did that so if you get a well-used leica or a well-used nikon f2 or something along those lines chances are it's been serviced quite a few times now it being 2022 there's a good chance it hasn't been serviced in the past 30 years, but at least, you know, it's been touched at least some point getting rid of the original lube, possibly replacing it with something slightly more modern, uh, which will help you have a better chance of one that still works today. I have a key, uh, the key of 60 and I really like how it feels, but they overlap the frames overlap. And I always wondered mm -hmm. if that was why, because it wasn't really, whoever it's just did out of spec. It, it's out of spec. I mean, the quality control just wasn't, again, they did not have a free market, right? There was, it didn't matter whether or not it was perfect or not, you know? So kind of like what you were saying that happened for sure. But I, I don't think it was done on purpose though. It didn't like say, ah, screw it. Let's make the shitty camera. And then, you know, this guy down the street is going to let Oleg fix it. You know, it was more along the lines of you had a purpose, you made this camera, you just got it out the door. You, and then you moved on to the next one. And then, you know, someone else would take care of it later. I've been looking at the, uh, the ARACs equivalent to, to the 60. And I, I wonder if they, they fixed that problem with those. Is the 60 oh, uh, uh, similar to the Pentacon six? Because the, the Pentagon say. 6 is known to have a transport problem, which is often fixed just by tensioning the film, like winding it backwards a little bit at, 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 when you get it started. Apparently, it makes a big difference. I, I've never handled one. I don't know if, if the winder is the same or not. The, the, the Pentagon 6 is, looks like a giant. It looks like a Pentax 67, except it's 6 by 6 right. They They do share a, a physical similarity as to whether or not they're designed internally the same. I can't say yeah. it, it inherited all the same problems. It did. Okay. Yeah. It still can be a really good camera. I've got one and I've been using it with a sonar this weekend gone. And yes, they can have frame overlapping, but if you try and if, if it take like the arrow on the back of the film, all the way to the spool on the opposite side, it tends to, you will get spacing instead of to the red dot. But I'll tell you, just to be fair, that's a common problem with Roloflexes too. You know, if they're out of mm -hmm. service, and they need help, your Aroloflex can do the exact same thing. So uh, is there something about the Pentagon 6 or the, the Kievs that caused that to happen more often? I can't say, but, you know, and I know you weren't saying that, Howard, but to anybody listening, just because it's the Pentagon doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to have that issue. That's just a symptom of that style of camera that's just that just needs help. 
You know, I, I see it all the time on Facebook. People say, I got this camera. I'm having this problem. Why is it happening? The answer always is it needs to be serviced. You know, yeah. if you, if you went out and bought a 1977 Buick LeSabre, you know, and started the engine and it didn't run or it had a knock or it handled like crap, you're going to say you need to take it to a mechanic, you know, and that's, that's literally the same thing with cameras too. It's just proper lubrication. It's just yeah. means that it's not lubricant. Like the lubricants inside have dried up over time. Yeah. Or there is no lubrication, or sometimes it's even debris, like dirt, sand, something making friction in there, and that's where you're getting the difference. It appears if you're going to have Soviet cameras to teach yourself some some form of repair, because they yeah. all need a little bit of it. They didn't get the care that they deserved because they were cheap. No. Right. I mean, I, I've, I've talked about this many, 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 many times. You get a Zorky or a Fed that's, that's in good shape, that's been lubricated properly, that's serviced. It, it'll never have that refinement of a screw mount Leica. But I tell you what, it's going to work just as good. It's going to take the same quality pictures. In my opinion, you're going to have the same level of satisfaction unless, unless you just really, really want to have a camera that has the LEICA on it. Uh, a, a good working Zorky is a, a fantastic camera. Great. So, so Alyssa, I don't know if you even listened to the show at all. I checked. It's okay. You can post your article. And if, if anybody gives you shit, you just say, ah, Camerosity podcast said it was okay. <laughs> so um, I had one more topic I wanted to go over, but I can't remember what it was. Paul or Anthony, was there something we were supposed to talk about? Well, we were going to talk about King Regula. No, we weren't. We, this was going to be a King Regula-free episode. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, and what, what you just said was interesting about cameras because even new cameras have have initial defects. Sure. I was a Nikon advanced system dealer for about 30 years. And whenever I had the chance to uh, to buy Nikon demos, I would buy them because a demo camera is either a camera that has been has been returned to Nikon with an initial defect and repaired, or it was a salesman sample. Um, generally, Nikon would not, not replace a camera to a dealer unless it had been repaired at least twice, and sometimes three times. But once it, once it hit the point where they shotgunned it, where they replaced everything that was on the inside, you never had a problem with them. I mean, they were absolutely, they had been tested to a much greater degree than any brand new camera was. So I was always confident buying demo lenses and demo bodies because I never had any problem with them. You know, an initial defect on an electronic camera, if it's going to fail, generally it's going to fail right out of the box. So you're, you're better actually to, if you have the opportunity to buy a, a camera that's been burnt in, right. buy it. it. It makes more sense. That's the same thing with televisions. That's the same thing with computers. If it's going to die, it's going to happen pretty quickly. You know, once you get past that sort of initial burn-in, kind of, so to speak, uh, electronics-wise, you're probably going to be okay. I mean, I, I used to service computers in a previous life, and uh, we would get, you know, a certain number of computers that were brand new, and they'd be dead out of the box, and people would say, I literally turned this thing on, and it was dead. Like, what the hell happened? It's like, it, it just happened. Sample, sample variation. Usually, but once you make it past a couple days, the TV, you know, it, it, usually they're going to be okay. And I, and I agree with you, Paul, you know, getting one that's, that's had a little bit of work done, or, or I'm sorry, been used a little bit. If it's still working, then you're probably going to be fine. That's where like you go on Amazon, a lot of times they have factory recondition, you know, sometimes those are actually better to get because they're, someone's at least turned it on once, 
you know, whether or not they tested it, who knows, but I, I feel like there's at least a slightly better chance that it's going to be in better shape because someone actually looked at it instead of it coming off of an assembly line, a robot puts it in a box and it gets shipped to your house and no humans ever touched it before. So can I give you a, a, another quick update about my adventures with E6 processing? Sure. So it's, it's E6, if you've never done it, it's three parts. There's a developer A, and then there's a color developer, then there's a Blix. And it's like six minutes on the first one, four and a half minutes on the second one, and 10 minutes on the Blix. And so I'm trying to get two rolls done. One I shot in the top con and one I shot red scaled in the uh, in the Rolly 35. And I'm doing this like in the 20 minutes before the show starts and the dogs are driving me crazy and I'm talking to Janet about things that are happening at work and I'm not looking down and I go in to do the final rinse and I think, well, this Blix is weird. It looks just like developer. And I realized when I pulled the reels out oh, and no. look at them and they're black that I had run it through the color developer twice once for six and a half or for four and a half minutes then the second time for 10 minutes and i'd skipped the blicks and i pulled them out of the reel and looked at them through the light and i could see that there was like a latent image in it but it was black and yeah thought, well, what happens if i put it back in the blicks so i rolled it back up real fast drop it into the blicks and i'll be damned if i didn't salvage both rolls wow that's surprising wow. the red scale one just just looks like red scale the other one just looks hyper saturated like the blacks are like, like inky, inky, inky black. And the colors are super, super, like super saturated. It looks like somebody went onto Photoshop and just dialed up the saturation, like yeah, 40%, right. but totally scannable and totally color correctable in, in, wow. in Photoshop. Maybe you've, you've stumbled upon a new process E7. You can literally run that. <laughs> you can hammer that with a, with a 16 minute developer and then expose it to light and then blix it and it'll work. Wow. Wow. Well, you know, that's a step in Kodachrome, right? You're actually taking it out mid-development and exposing it to light and then putting it, like then moving on to the next step. Now, I don't know how to do that. I literally unspooled it up and held it up to the light. Yeah, you actually, you, that's how Kodachrome is. And put it in the Blix and it worked. That is actually a step. There's 17 steps to do Kodachrome and at two, maybe even three different times. You actually have to, there's a lot in the machines. There was just a light that did it like UV right. light or something, but the whole, like that Kelly Shane, whatever that dude's name was, he would literally just take it out and expose it to a light. And then you just, you work onto the next step somehow. It, I don't know how that works, but that's cool though. Yep. Definitely. Just, Curious to see how it looks once you get them scanned. Has anybody shot or picked up any of the new Kodak Gold 200? We got some given by Two Film Lab for the portrait photo shoot that we had on the weekend, but none of us has the the, the results yet. But yeah, it's uh, it was it was nice just you know just having it. Film Photography Project was selling it single rolls at a time for eight ninety nine, and I went on their website and I added it to my cart. And I was like, well, if I'm going to order something, I should see what else they have so I can save on shipping. So I looked around and then by the time I came back to my car, it was out of stock. So I was like, ow. <laughs> I think it's going to be like that for a little while. Yeah. My local shop sold out. I'm wondering what people think of the Cinestill 400D announcement. We had the Cinestill guy on last episode, but we didn't really talk to him about it. That, that's why That's why I wanted yeah. to raise it is I, 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 didn't, I, I didn't hear about it till a couple of days ago, but now it's intriguing me. Is it just Vision t- Vision Three film? No, uh, it's a new a film. Jet? It's I a mean, new film. Um, I think it will look a lot like shooting Overdrive because they like balance. So 
it's more of like, yeah, whether you want to spend the extra money to shoot that. But I, I wonder if it has an anti-halation layer like Portra or whether they it's Vision 3 without a remjet. And, uh... It's definitely not Vision 3. They, they confirmed that. But it's um, I think they're actually comp- they're positioning it to compete against Portra. So I imagine there'll be some sort of um, similarities to it, like, like Jess was just saying. Yeah, yeah. like I have a sense that the, like, uh, they've done the comparison and the photos come out very similar. So, I mean, uh, they could be repackaging something else. You don't really know. Until- yeah, the, there's no night shots. That's why I can't tell about the anti-halation layer. Like, you see a street light on Sinistil. 800T, like, every oh, light yeah. glows. And it's cool if done correctly, but if you're not expecting that, you're probably going to hate it. But the the pricing for the four by five, which they they now said they achieved enough funding that they'll do the four by five, is, is better than Portrait. Okay. So because their result is very similar, I've seen the results, and the results are very similar. Also, once the film goes through the scan, it depends on where you're getting a scan. Some scanners, because of yeah. the profiles they have, a lot of the film will look similar. Yeah. Uh, more similar. So yeah, I guess. You know how much bring on the competition it's, it's good for us yeah i imagine there's a, a lot of collectors have a lot of cameras i was wondering how people are keeping track of their their uh collection as far as like uh, software or excel mother of a spreadsheet <laughs> that's that's me because i think yeah somebody definitely should make it up i think there is a market for that at least within the people here in this room <laughs> I'm not plugging for anybody, but I found a software on the internet called Recollector, and you can customize it to any collection, any type of collection you want. I really like it. I was just wondering how other people are doing. Re R E Collector. Yes. Okay, I'll check it out. Yeah, you 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 can get like a free trial, try it out. But you can you can customize it any way you want for any from cameras to. The batteries, if you collect batteries, I mean, you could yeah. customize it to anything. I have an Excel spreadsheet for, for my site because I need that to keep track of what I need to review, at what stage of the process it's in, which cameras are loaded, which cameras have which film, which cameras are I've shot a, a roll and then need to develop it. Uh, at what point am I at in the process? I even keep track of these podcast episodes. So I use Excel for that, but I, I don't do it for the like the entire collection, which I, I know I should. You know, it's it's something that I think anybody should really pay attention to because what how much you, you understand insurance is if you have a large collection and your house explodes or floods or something like that, you go to your insurance man and say, hey, I had 400 cameras. They're going to be like, well, sorry, uh, you need to get a floater. You need to actually itemize with serial numbers and document what you have. For those of us with really large collections, it's probably not very practical both financially and time-wise to do every single camera, but uh, find some kind of compromise and take maybe your top 20 most valuable cameras and at least track that, you know, get the serial numbers. If it gets stolen, that's going to help a lot too. But just in case, you know, you ever have a fire in your home and you lose your stuff, you're going to want to make sure that that's documented. I had a habit of forgetting what I had and then I'd end up buying it something again. I think everybody does that. If you're, if you're just starting out now, it's, it's especially collecting, especially if you've got under 100, um, it's worth catching all that information. And as you buy the cameras and, and add them to your collection, adding that information to spreadsheet, recollector, whatever you use, um, because in the long run, having that list sort of organically grow 
makes it a lot easier. That's what I found with mine. It makes it a lot easier to, to keep track uh, rather than, you know, going, oh, crap, I've got 500 cameras. I now need to go catalog them all. I've been trying to do that during the pandemic, and I made it about 75% of the way through, and it's like, oh, screw it. No. <laughs> you always think you have time. I use one called Home Inventory for Mac, which also allows to have any sort of documentation you want with it, uh, customize the different categories, generate PDF reports, which is kind of nice. X, those are some good tips. Like I said, it's it's worthwhile if you have anything of value to just make sure you document it for theft, for fire, for flood, for whatever. You know, you don't want to lose this stuff and never be able to replace it. So we've hit the hour and 45 minute point in the show. Uh, so want to kind of wind down here. Uh, definitely want to say thanks to Nafis for coming back once again, sharing with us some information about the large format Polaroids. I mean, that is just something that with only six cameras in the world and a proprietary type of film that you, you can't buy anywhere that's not made anymore. I mean, that's, that's just really, really, really cool. And uh, I'll definitely, you know, check out that documentary and uh, do a little more research on that. So thank you for coming on the show, but of course you're always welcome back anytime. No, thanks for having me. And you know, everybody else, Dan, it's awesome having you back. Howard, uh, James, once again, Mark, as always, uh, Jess, you know, it's good to see you come back. Sorry, we didn't get to talk to, I already forgot his name, the other guy. Richard finally got his audio uh, issues <laughs> fixed. We didn't really talk about Canon much It'll this right episode. Yeah. Do you, do you have uh, Peter Kitchenman's book? Me, yes. You yes. do? Yeah, I've got. It's really good. Yeah, and I bought, bought one of the first ones, and then Peter gave me another one, and he came to stay with me one time. Oh, okay. So you've met him then? Yeah, I met him a couple of times. That's really cool. Very, very, very nice guy. We are planning on doing another European episode coming up soon. Uh, I, we've been dragging our feet on picking which one or which which day we're going to do it. So stay tuned for that. Do we have any special guests coming up? I don't think we do. Every single caller is a special guest. Yeah, that's true. You're right. I, oh, I should. Okay. We're going to have special guests all next episode. <laughs> it's going to be you guys. Once again, thanks everybody for joining. It's been fun. Uh, you guys all have a safe rest of the week. Uh, it's We're recording on Sunday. A lot of that has to do with me. My schedule is in constant turmoil. So we're probably going to be recording at some weird times here and there. But stay tuned for the next show announcement for episode 24. Uh, and we'll get this one out a couple days like usual. So you guys have a great night. Bye, Bye everybody. Bye. Thank you. Bye, Bye everyone. Bye. Thanks, guys. Welcome to episode 22, 23. Got to fix that. From Gainesville, Florida, owner of Volta Coffee and the U.S. distributor for Cosmo Mont... God damn it. Ugh. Son of a... I can't talk tonight. We're recording on a Sunday night because I was at... at was, or, or, oh, I'm really losing it today.